who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Well, welcome back uh, to our class on 1 Samuel. We are in chapter 22 where we left off. Just making sure my microphone's on here. I've been there, done that before where I've left you all trying to read my lips. So we are again locked down on account of Governor Newsom's decree that churches are inherently unsafe places uh, and non-essential places, I might add as well. So there's no one in audience today. Again, I hope you all are catching this stream uh, online. We are looking at some of the themes having to do with Saul and David. And again, last week I pointed out, and I'll point out once more, that the way we want to see and consider this text is we have two who have been anointed. We have two messiahs. We have the true Messiah in David and the anti-Messiah in Saul. The true Christ, that's what anointed one means, and the anti-Christ, the one who is persecuting the true Christ. And so this persecution on the part of uh, Saul persecuting David, this persecution then is exactly what uh, all the faithful have looked, have, have looked to this dynamic, and including the Lutheran reformers on up to the present the true church and the false church. The false church being those within the church, uh, the visible Christendom, as we, as we sometimes say, who are persecuting the true church and doing so very violently. We were reading just today, uh, earlier today, in the uh, Book of Concord, the Augsburg Confession, and in the article specifically having to do with the marriage of priests, where marriage was being, uh, you know, forbidden the priesthood in the 16th century. It continues to this day, and of course we've seen all the disaster that's happened. That morally, you know, these men are not chaste. Um, they're the opposite of chaste. They're, they're just satanically wicked in the things that they do. And so this, this forbidding of marriage, this hatred of women, is very expressly called in Scripture a doctrine of demons. And then, like, the icing on the cake of this whole thing in the 16th century is so those priests that uh, were married or had gotten married um, were basically being forced to uh, reject their wife, reject their children, leave them destitute and on their own, or face the death penalty. And so in some cases, uh, the papacy and the bishops were putting Christian men, putting pastors to death uh, but when they refuse to, um, when they refuse to be celibate, when they refuse, they, they, you know, they went out and sought godly marriages, and then when they refuse to put their wives and children away, uh, again, godly marriages, godly children, everything in accord with God's word, they were put to death by this antichrist, the Pope. So you can see very viscerally, very concretely, how the antichrist, with quote unquote, within the church, right visible Christendom, persecutes the true Christ, Christ embodied in his people, in his anointed ones that he anoints through baptism. 
So this dynamic goes on all throughout the scriptures, all throughout uh, the, the Old Testament and all throughout the New, up climaxing at Christ and then all throughout uh, all, you know, Christ, the age of Christ and the age of the church. You even remember this with um, Saul who was persecuting Christians and he was single-handedly having them imprisoned and ultimately put to death. He was responsible for that. He claims responsibility for that. I mean, he viewed himself as within the household of God, within the church. And he was persecuting those inside the church to the point where when Christ intervenes and reveals himself to Paul, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting not my church, not my Christians? Why are you persecuting me? And so Saul is, is converted and becomes changes from an antichrist to a Christ, baptized, anointed in Christ, one with Christ, counting himself dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And so then Paul himself becomes persecuted and suffers terribly by the antichrist, continuing to pursue, continuing to murderously try to kill those who are of Christ. So this dynamic goes on and on. It's present and apparent throughout all church history. It's why so many of the church fathers are, uh, you know, martyrs and, and but frequently betrayed and backstabbed even by those within the church, excommunicated, etc. So the, that goes on. The true church is very frequently a minority, maybe even entirely a minority within the visible church. So those dynamics at play here as we look at Saul and David as we, as we ponder these things, we see again um, David's genuineness, though as we progress along we see that David, like, like every other human being, is a sinner. And so David is not made in this text to look like someone who's perfect. Obviously, he shines and shines brightly, especially juxtaposed with Saul, who Saul, you know, everything he does, he takes, I mean, as we're going to say, well, as we saw last week, he murders all the priests and then he dares to take God's name upon his lips. I, I mean, just the man is the definition of a hypocrite and the definition of a blind, a, a blind soul. And David shines over and against that, of course. But we start to see David's own issues, too, come up uh, already in the text uh, in the next two chapters to come. So let's go ahead and take a look at that. Of course, the end of chapter 22 is, you know, that's why I went into this long diatribe, because chapter 22 is really one of the saddest chapters in this text. Saul is pursuing David, and uh, there, were, there was a priest, uh, Ahimelech, um, who helped David out at the city of Nob. And of course, there was this ne'er-do-well Doeg uh, who witnessed Ahimelech aiding David. Saul, in his perverse hatred for David, sees anyone who aids and abeds David as uh, worthy of death. Of course, the irony here, I mean, just, I mean, deeply sorrowful irony, is that Ahimelech didn't even know he was doing anything wrong. David had, or, or anything contrary to the king, let's put it that way, anything contrary to the king. Because David had told him he was on the king's errand and asked for the showbread, you know, again, we think that that was the, the showbread that had already been replaced, the, the leftovers, so to speak. Ahimelech gives it to him and to his men and thinks he's doing a service to the king's servant. 
So when Saul calls him to task for this, I mean, not only did, I mean, what he did, it wasn't even intentionally against Saul. He thought he was helping Saul. And so for this quote unquote good, Saul repays him evil and not only him, but uh, it looks like 85 total, if I have that, yeah, 85 total priests and the first place are killed. This is so heinous and so atrocious that Saul's own servants, his own men won't do it. We've seen this before where they spare Jonathan, the people spare Jonathan because Saul's so out of his mind. He, of course, turns to Doeg, who, uh, a disgusting character if ever there was one. Um, he himself kills these 85 priests, which, again, if you just do the math, like they allowed themselves to be killed. These are martyrs. Look at the beautiful typology here because they help David, the, the messianic figure, and are so martyred. And, you know, that's, boy, that's just like, that's a beautiful type of what it is to be priests, royal priesthood of the true Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ, and to aid and help him um, very frequently means martyrdom, persecution, and or uh, even death. And so a beautiful type of what it is to be faithful. But those 85, you know, they accept their martyrdom and they receive their crowns. But Saul's wickedness and just, I, I mean, again, I use the word ironic and it's true, but it, like that word doesn't even do justice. Just the, the wicked irony is that he, it doesn't stop with the priests, of course, as you read in chapter 22, verse 19. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, ox and donkey and sheep, he put to the sword. So he annihilates the town. And the irony, of course, is in all these, in all these wicked, perverse Canaanite civilizations and cities that um, the Lord had told Saul, look, judgment has befallen them. My divine judgment has fallen upon them. Go and strike them down, uh, wipe them out, devote them to destruction. That's the biblical language. Saul doesn't. He doesn't. And he comes up with the lamest excuses and faux worship of God while he and the people seek to enrich themselves. So where they're supposed to do it, they don't. And here, where it's God's people, I mean, these are the households that support the priesthood. These are faithful, pious people, men, women, and children. And not only them, but their animals. So here in the very place where Saul absolutely should not even touch them, he devotes them to destruction. So, I mean, just look at the symmetry here. I won't spell it all out, but it's just disgusting, you know. Where he should do his, where he should do his destruction, he spares. Where he should spare, he does his destruction. He's just, he is... Um, you know, definitely an antichrist figure. Everything's upside down with Saul. Okay, and then where we left off was chapter 22, verse 20. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. So this is really how the priesthood continues, is through Abiathar. He also goes over to David so that David now has the priesthood and Saul does not, I mean, of his own hand. But David now has the priesthood. As you kind of see two kingdoms developing as you were, as it were, you know. So, yeah, Abiathar escapes and flees after David. Verse 21, and Abiathar told David 
that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me, do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safe keeping. So David takes in Abiathar and he has the priest. I, of course, look at, I mean, look at David. He regrets and laments the fact that this has happened. I mean, contrary to Saul, who's just cold and heartless. It's important to grasp this about Saul because you really have to grasp how ruthless and merciless and nasty he is so that later on when you see his repentance, you can see why Luther and so many of the church fathers just see him as a complete hypocrite and a complete phony. Um, because this, he always, I mean, even if he feels like this brief respite of actually feeling bad, which is usually just feeling bad for himself, um, he always returns to this cruelty, this nastiness. So keep this fresh in your minds as uh, we run across these texts where uh, Saul appears to repent. It's just that, it's just an appearance. Okay, so then that takes us into chapter 23. Now they told David, Behold, Philistines are fighting against Calah and are robbing the threshold floors. So this is more from the Philistines. Calah is a village um, near the border, so this is like a recurrent thing. But this poses a big challenge because David's already being attacked internally by his own brothers, you know, Saul and and the Israelites. And now there's this external threat to God's people and the Philistines. And truth be told, the Philistines probably pose the greater military risk just, you know, toe to toe. And so, yeah, so, so they're robbing the threshing floors. I mean, they're just going in and taking the harvest. They're plundering, basically. So verse 2, therefore David inquired of the Lord, shall I go and attack these Philistines? He may have acquired, um, he may have acquired, what's the exact language here? Acquired of the Lord through uh, Abiathar. The text doesn't explicitly say that. I think the study note points that out and does so elsewhere that lots of times this isn't written in the text, but it's just simply assumed that that's what's going on. Uh, you'll also notice frequently the use of like yes, no questions. So the Urim and Thummim may be used uh, as well. That certainly is evident later on in this text and may, it may be the case here too. So you can see that David inquires the Lord, shall I go and attack these Philistines? It's yes or no. So the Urim and Thummim can answer that. Of course, that's going to be in the hand of Abiathar. And the Lord said to David, go and attack the Philistines and save Calah. In other words, yes. But da- So, yes, this is a big deal. Verse 3, but David's men said to him, behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more than if we go to Calah against the armies of the Philistines? In other words, I mean, we've already got an enemy we can't beat in Saul. How are we going to go out and take on someone who's greater than Saul, these Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Calah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. (coughs) Excuse me. And David and his men went to Calah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Calah. 
All right, so boy, talk about a. I mean, if you're in the inhabitants of Kalah, it's like this is conflicting because David just came and saved you, and he's the king's enemy. I mean, obviously, God gives him a victory too because this is a, I mean, this is a supernatural victory. Not only does he strike them with a great blow, but he brings away their livestock, thus in, enriching Kalah, and to some degree himself. I mean, these are provisions that David and his men greatly need. All right, so David saves the inhabitants of Kalah, so he does them a good. This is one of the themes throughout these chapters, too, that we want to really pay attention to, because we've heard it as a refrain, uh, David speaking with um, Jonathan about Saul, and this idea of, why does he repay my good with evil? I've done him good, he does me evil. This is a major theme in these latter chapters. Um, and so just pay attention to that. David does the city of Kalah good. Um, you know, Ahimelech thought he was doing Saul good. Ahimelech gets repaid by Saul with evil. David, as we're going to see, gets repaid by the Kalahites with evil. So that theme goes on. Verse 6, when Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, you know, it's like, I mean, it's, sorry to digress one more time, but it's really like, um, it's like Jesus with uh, Judas. You know, when did, when did Jesus ever do Judas wrong? Uh, Jesus did only good to Judas. Judas repays his good with evil. So that's the theme and, and why ultimately, too, uh, you know, Judas becomes like the major antichrist figure um, just right in Jesus' midst who betrays him and hands him over. Okay, verse 6, when Abiathar the son of Ahimelech had fled to David to Calah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Uh, this is the high priestly garment. It's made of the same stuff that the inner, um, that the inner curtain is made of. The veil that's torn. So yeah, it's made of the same stuff. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Calah. <laughs> I mean, how do you like this? So David, David again does hear for Calah what Saul should be doing. If Saul, it's just so, just drips with irony and drips with everything upside down. I, this is a text for our time because it's so like this today. So Saul, Saul shouldn't be pursuing David. Saul should be saving Calah. Saul isn't saving Calah. David is. So instead of saying, you know, thank you, David, for doing the job I should have done when I was pursuing you, Saul instead says, aha, he's at Kayla. I'm going to go kill him. <laughs> not, oh, I mean, so in this sense, like, David even does a favor not only for the, for the Kalites, but also for Saul. He does what Saul should have been doing. And so for this good, Saul's going to repay him now with evil. I, I mean, I guess we take comfort in it, that when we look around us in politics and in the world today, we see it every bit as twisted, every bit as wicked, every bit as indiscernible, um, and, and yet there's nothing new under the sun. Nothing new under the sun. The obvious hero they have in David, though he has his shortcomings and faults, we have in our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the true king of this world. That's why no matter what, you know, where you sit on the political spectrum, put not your trust in princes, the scriptures say. You know, 
this, these worldly politics, they don't matter. What matters ultimately is our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the true King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the true ruler over this world. All authority in heaven and on earth have been given to him, and therefore he laughs in derision when the nations rise up against him and think they're going to stamp out Christianity as the, as the secular left in our, as, as the left, I mean, it's redundancy, as the left in our country wants to stamp out Christianity and says as much. Um, the Lord laughs at this. And we, we should, too, taking our confidence and our trust in him. I mean, the rights, every bit is corrupt, I think, probably here in, in America. It's just they, there's this one key difference. They're not vocally saying that they want to destroy the church. They're not enacting policies to destroy the church, at least not yet. Um, but that's, that's a major difference. It's a major difference. It's unavoidable for Christians to, to consider. Like, this isn't a competition of who's the worst liar Who's the most screwed up person, you know, amongst our politicians, amongst our leaders? Like, they're all liars. They're all screwed up. And even if we concede, okay, well, one's worse than another. It's like, well, what's actually the material issue? Because if you're voting in those who are going to persecute the church, you're culpable. You're culpable for what they do. You're like St. Paul holding the garments of those who stone Stephen. And we Christians, if we all mobilized and voted for those politicians that how about this, voted out those politicians who express open animosity against the church. Everything from declaring us non-essential to treating us as such, to ruling against us, to putting in policies that are going to lead to our continued persecution. I'm thinking of those who have already lost their jobs for simply asserting their Christian faith in the public domain, um, faced lawsuits persecution and more of that's coming I mean if we Christians all stood up and just voted out people who want to persecute Christians the nation would change tomorrow I mean the face of our politics would change tomorrow if we all if all of us Christians could simply be united in hey let's kick out those guys that hate us and want to persecute the church that's all it would take that's really a stunning moment in our history because if, if we go the other direction, like there's literally no one to blame but Christians. I, viewed from this angle, Christians permitted this. Christians are the ones that voted these people in who hate and despise and want to destroy the church. That's the sad irony, the stark darkness of our own times. And that even my comments are somehow going to be filtered out as if they're political. <laughs> I'm sorry, they're just not. It's not even political. Like, that's the delusion of our times. It's just what it is. And as Christians, we have a, a duty to see things as they are and act, knowing we'll be held accountable. Judgment begins with the house of the Lord. It ends with the world. Okay, well, there's a digression, but boy, this text sure brings it out. So David just, <laughs> just goes at the risk of himself and his own men, frees Kayla, and then Saul can't think of anything else other than, hey, I've got him. I know where he is. So verse 7, now it was told Saul that David had come to Kayla, and Saul said, God has given him into my hand. For he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. 
you know, previously David was roaming around the wilderness, like much harder to track down. Now he's actually, he saved the town. He's in the town. There's gates and bars. Look, he shut himself in. We'll go starve him out. Like, this is it. And look what Saul says. God has given him into my hand. Yeah, the same God whose priests you just destroyed and slaughtered, whose innocent people you just murdered. I mean, this, like, look how sick this is. Verse 8, and Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Calah to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him. And he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. Then uh, said David, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Calah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Calah surrender me into his hand? Okay, so the study note even points out, here's a whole bunch of yes, no questions that are asked. The ephod coming, we, the ephod's been mentioned before. You know, again, I'll just let the study note speak. This seems to indicate that Abiathar is mediating, that he's wearing the ephod, that he's in this role of high priest and mediator, that he's using the Urim and Thummim, um, that God is answering David's yes-no questions in precisely this way. Uh, so that seems to be what's going on. Um, if not, then you're kind of left to come up with, with your own conclusion as to what all these different strands are about or what they're trying to communicate. So, again, that seems to be what's happening. So, David is inquiring of the Lord. Again, we're, showing, we're seeing humility, whereas with Saul, it's, oh, God's done this. He's trapped in Kalah. This is God's hand. There's arrogance. And here is humility. O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Kalah to destroy the city on my account. Um... Will the men of Kalos surrender me into his hand? <laughs> there. Will the Kalites who I've just helped betray me? Will they repay my good with evil? Will Saul come down as your servant uh, has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said he will come down. So yes, Saul's coming after you. Then David said, Will the men of Kalah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord says, You betcha, they will surrender you. So you're surrounded by people who, you know, they're not really your friends, even though you just saved them. They're going to turn their back on you and hand you over. Verse 13, Then David said, uh, excuse me, then David and his men, who were about 600. Uh, you can note the numerical change here. It's kind of interesting. From chapter 22, verse 2, he's got 400. Now he's got 600. So um, his numbers are, are slowly, slowly growing. And this isn't anything compared to what Saul has. We're going to see he comes with 3,000. So it's like 5 to 1. So David and his uh, 600 men, they arose and departed from Kalah, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Kalah, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness. Remember, strongholds can also mean caves. In the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph, and Saul sought him every day 
but God did not give him into his hand. So, again, God preserves David over and against the pursuits of Saul. I am very tragic. I, I won't belabor it, but, you know, for, for David's good, for risking his life for the sake of his brothers and saving Caleb from the hand of the Philistines, for this good, he's repaid with double evil. Saul tries to come kill him, and the Kalites are going to hand him over to be killed. So he's got no choice but to flee out on his own with his 400 men. I, if you just stop and think of the psychology of this, like how isolating, how depressing, how bewildering, and how it must look like the odds are entirely stacked against you. You can't possibly win. But David clings to the Lord's promise that he is the, that he is the anointed, that he is to be the next king. So here you see David's faithfulness, even when it looks like I mean, it must have looked to David you know, as, the, as though at many points God had perhaps forsaken him, just demoralizing. And certainly pointing toward that, that moment of, of our Lord's own agony where the Lord does in fact completely leave him and, and the Lord cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So points to that, points to where, you know, Jesus, boy, after John 6... You know, after that feeding of the 5,000, the sermon, eating his flesh and drinking his blood, everyone leaves except the 12, and he says, are you two going to go? Are you two going to go away? And, and that's when Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, but Jesus was brought down to 12. David's got 600. Jesus had 12. Just, that's the way it goes. So, I mean, I take that as we shouldn't be demoralized when the church is small. We're just, we're right as David was. We're right as Jesus was. We're, we're right in the path of, of how it always is. You think of the remnant with Elijah. And, um, yeah. Yeah, it's just small. And it looks like certain defeat, but the Lord, the Lord prevails. The Lord delivers. Even in, in perfect weakness, he manifests his strength. Even by our Lord's death, he destroys the power of death. All right, verse 15. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. So this is an incredible move. Again, Jonathan just showing forth his character. The last we saw, Jonathan you know, had ferreted out his father's real intent to kill David and do him great harm and so he had given warning to David and that's what precipitated David's flight and then all that's gone on so now Jonathan learns where David is and Jonathan goes out just to strengthen and comfort him and it probably at his great his own great personal peril I mean his dad's psychotic right now he'll kill him no doubt about it he's already tried he's already thrust the spear at him he's already tried to have the people kill him so this is, a, this is a really, really bold move that Jonathan comes uh, just to comfort and strengthen David. Yeah, strengthen his hand in God. I love that language. Verse 17. And he said to him, Do not fear for the hand of Saul. My father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel. Look at this. He's just reminding him of God's promise. 
He's just reminding him of God's word. Like this is so fantastic because this is the kind of, we want to be Jonathans to each other in these dark days. We want to strengthen each other. We want to remind each other just point blank of God's promises. We are baptized. God will see us through this. God will give us the strength we need. You know, and Jonathan, the text doesn't say, but he probably brought some provisions too. And just, you know, strengthens David to what extent he can physically, but all the more important, strengthens him spiritually. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. That is to say, I'm going to be your servant. Remember, this is huge because Jonathan's like, he's the next one on the throne. He's the next one in the line. So the fact he's saying, no, it's you, and I'll be next to you, in other words, to support you. Like, this is huge. It's, it's humble. It's faithful. It's, it's wonderful uh, friendship and self-sacrifice. He's putting himself at risk to say this. He continues, Saul, my father, also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. The study note says this is likely the renewal of their covenant made back in chapter 20. Not necessarily that they made a new covenant here, but they renewed their covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horesh and Jonathan went home. So this must have been huge light in the darkness for David and huge comfort. You know, we see things 2020, hindsight 2020, and and it looks like this is all easy and settled and determined and all David had to do was just hang on and everything was going to go great. That, of course, is not at all how it looked to David in the moment. You know? And it's not at all how it looks to us in the moment either. I was thinking about that in the Treasury of Daily Prayer where Paul gets locked up um, right before Festus takes over. And I think it says that he's there for two years. For two years he's imprisoned there. I mean, there's just not a word of the psychology of that, but can you think of how demoralizing and depressing that would be? You'd be thinking it's never going to end. And, you know, just... We can't rob ourselves with the hindsight 2020 that these saints didn't go through the very questions and the very doubts and the very, you know, fearfulness that we ourselves go through. They're precisely our example, not because they somehow saw something that we don't see or had something that we don't have. They had the word and promises of God. They had each other strengthening each other with the words and promises of God. And that's what we have. And so that's enough. And then, you know, that's one thing I'm so blessed, you know, with the people here at Faith, that they encourage and lift me up, that they encourage and lift up one another. It's a beautiful thing to see. And it's a beautiful part of, of our life together and our community together. I know some of you, too, have taken it upon yourselves to call people in the congregation, some that you know. I know some people in our congregation have even called people they don't know during this pandemic and have said, hey, you know, let me introduce myself. <laughs> you probably go to the 8 o'clock service. I go to the 1030. How are you doing? Is there anything you need? I mean, what, what beautiful example of the life in Christ. What a beautiful uh, Jonathan-like spirit to lift up David to lift up one another remind each other of the promises of God it's beautiful and so in this way too we walk the path of our fathers the path of faithfulness it's the valley of the shadow of death but we fear no evil for the Lord is with us and he brings us through so this is just a beautiful moment um, of Jonathan uh, coming in and ministering to David all right verse 19 
Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horash, on the hill of Hakalah, which is south of Jeshimon? You know, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. So the Ziphites rat David out that he's up there hanging out. You know, they're probably trying to get a favor, curry, curry favor with the king. Verse 20, Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. And Saul said, May you be blessed by the Lord. Yeah. Again, just look at this. May you be blessed by the Lord. Jonathan has just said, My father knows that the Lord has anointed him. And now he's going to take the, name, the Lord's name upon his lips as he goes out to kill David. So here's the, here's the bitter, bitter heart of Saul. May, the, may you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Self-pitying, self-loving, the root of all personal evil. Go make yet more sure. Know and see the place where his foot is and who has seen him there. For it is told me that he is very cunning. See therefore and take note of all the lurking places where he hides and come back to me with sure information. Then I will go with you. And if he is in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. And they arose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, in the Arabah to the south of Jeshimon. And Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And that rock is likely the mountain referred to in the next verse. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David and the wilderness of Maon. Saul went on one side of the mountain and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. Look how close Saul is to finally having his hands around the throat of David. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. You know, they're playing ring around the rosy on this mountain. As Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of Angedi. So, Clearly what's going on here is the Lord spares David. I mean, too close for comfort if you're David. But the Lord spares him. Uh, Saul's right there ready to close in. And so what does the Lord do? He incites the Philistines to attack. And the attack is so ferocious, so fierce and threatening that Saul has no choice but to let David slip through his fingers and go do battle with the Philistines. So that's what he does. And the Lord spares him. I did not have time to do any research into this. I kind of want to. I just don't know if this week will allow it. But this language of the rock, the rock of escape and this mountain, and you kind of wonder at, at all the, the language in the Psalms of David about the rock, the Lord being his rock. 
I, I wonder if there's a relationship, if nothing else in David's mind, to this salvific act where the Lord, I mean, quite literally spared him, humanly speaking, from, uh, from Saul. And so this rock became the, the place of refuge, the place where the Lord saved him. Well, if any of you find that out and you want to share that with me, uh, send me an email. I can't promise I'll respond. I'm completely overwhelmed in terms of electronic communications these days. But, uh, but if you do find something definitive there, I'd be happy to hear it. All right, very famous story, and looks like we've got enough time to get it, so let's do it. This is 24. This is the most famous of the stories where David spares Saul's life. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel. You know, these are his elite forces, his elite fighters here. So it's not like, I mean, it's, it's 3,000 to 600, so it's 5 to 1. But again, the 600 that David has around him are kind of the misfits. You remember that from, I can't remember, a few chapters ago. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Chapter 22, verse 2. Uh, uh, the, mis- the misfits are kind of around David. Um, these are the elite soldiers out of all Israel that Saul's got. So this is quite overwhelming. Saul took, uh, took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in the, f- in the front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave. There's some, I mean, there's some beautiful imagery here with the goats and the, and the sheepfolds. And you remember David being the shepherd and there's all kinds of typological stuff going on here, of course. I'm just not going to take the time to sermonize here. He came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave and Saul went in to relieve himself. The Hebrew is literally to cover his feet. So he's in the cave relieving himself. You know, he want, the king wants privacy. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave, which means it was either quite an elaborate cave structure to hold all 600 of them, or, or more likely it was David and, you know, his sort of inner circle in that cave, and other people, his, the rest of his men were kind of scattered around the countryside or the nearby area, and that, that seems to be most likely the case. And the men of David said to him, <laughs> here is the, I bet they couldn't believe their eyes. They could not believe their fortune. Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. This is incredible. This is marvelous. Because, because of what they say. I mean, they're thinking theologically. Why would this be wrong? Here is the day of which the Lord had said to you. Look, the Lord said this to you. This is his promise. His promise is literally now fulfilled. Do this thing. And David says no. This is, I mean, this is complex. I mean, spiritually complex stuff. But this is like, this is, this is analogous. In my thinking, and maybe, there, maybe you can think of something better here, but in my thinking, this is analogous to come down to the cross 
and save yourself. He trusted that God would deliver him. You know, like that kind of taunt right out of the scriptures. It's true that God would, would deliver him. It's true that he has the power to come down. It's true that if he came down, his enemies might well believe in him. It's true that if he comes down, I mean, what greater victory to come down from the cross, to heal yourself from the terrible scourging, to exact revenge on all your enemies, to have them convert or die right then and there? Would that not be the fulfillment of all God's word? And Jesus says, no. David says, no. It's going to be in this other way. It's going to be, I mean, David says it's going to be in the Lord's hands. The Lord says it's going to be in my Father's hands. There's a huge, 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 deep and difficult lesson here spiritually. Well, thank you for tolerating my musings. So, David says no to this. That's stunning. It's amazing. David arose, and instead of doing the deed, David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. You know, so, so pious is David that his conscience even gets after him for doing this act because Saul is the Lord's anointed. And David has such faith, such faith in God that in David's mind, it's like, well, if God, God anointed him and when God wants him gone, God will off him. That's not my responsibility. And so that David even comes that close bothers David's conscience. I mean, here again, we see where just, I don't know how else to put it, David is so far spiritually advanced beyond, beyond what, what is anywhere found today. Maybe if it's found, it's very, very rare. But David is, um, David is so spiritually advanced that he simply trusts that the Lord's will will be done. And he's not going to take that into his own hands. It's like Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. He simply trusts that the Lord's will is going to be done. He's not going to take anything into his hands. Not going to take anything into his own hands. Same with the cross. That's why it's the passion. It's passo. It's I suffer. It's I allow this to happen. I say God's will is done. I don't take things into my own hands. This is a really difficult thing to put into practice in the Christian life, but it's something to aspire toward and strive after. You know, to be dispassionate is to passo, I suffer. It's to allow it to happen, to be indifferent toward its happening, to rejoice in its happening, even if it's suffering. I mean, that's like, now we're getting into James, we're getting into Paul, we're getting into those verses. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, tribulations. How do you do that? How do you count it as joy without being utterly phony about it? I mean, faking it till you make it, which is fine. It's like, it's like actually a fine way to start. If you don't have anything else, you have that. 
and there's I, there's nothing to there's nothing inherently wrong with that, um, but but on a much deeper level, how do you actually get there? Where your heart's actually there? And that's this idea of submitting to God's will so thoroughly that if God wants it done, he'll do it. I know what he's promised me. I know what he said in this case about Saul, about this other. He is his anointed. I am his anointed. When the Lord wants to depose him and elevate me, that's the Lord will see to it. And if we could, if we could take that piece... I mean, in our corporate life, in terms of a church and our position in America and the politics and the principalities and powers of darkness, if we can take that position even interpersonally, you know, in our, in our own homes, uh, in our neighborhoods, in our communities, in um, our, our workplaces, the people around us, if we could take that posture of, I know who I am because the Lord hath said, and I'm not going to take matters into my own hands even if that means I suffer. You know, the difficulty is knowing when you can appeal on your own behalf and when you ought to. Certainly you can and should time to time, but this is a challenging thing to have as your baseline, though, David's baseline. Well, again, I apologize. I must be in a pontificating, ponderous mood today, but I, I think this text brings it out in me because it's one thing to just read the text and just say, well, that's what they did. It's another thing to actually stop and contemplate, like, what are the dynamics? What's going on here that allows David to act this way? And how, how might that look if, if we embraced uh, that mature spirituality ourselves? All right, so afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Can you imagine having that sensitive of a conscience, and I mean that in a, in a very positive way, a conscience that attuned to God's word that something so small would trouble you. I think most people today would like lop his head off and not even feel bad about it. I mean, this is the guy that was trying to kill me. I owe him. Verse 6, he said to his men, so here's his answer. Here's his answer. The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord. Whew. I mean, here is respect for authority. Here is the fourth commandment. The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him. I mean, again, you see the you see the Christ antichrist here, like, like Jesus doesn't destroy the devil. He destroys all the devil's works, thus crushing the serpent's head. Um, but it's not like he zaps him with lightning bolts. And so here too, it's like, you see the difference. The antichrist attacks the Christ. The Christ does not attack the antichrist, but defeats him nonetheless. The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. It's incredible deference for the Lord and incredible deference for this, this man in the office and love for the man in the office, not because the man is worthy, but because the office is worthy, because the Lord is worthy. 
I mean, here again, I won't take the time because I, I know I'm already treading upon your patience, and for that I apologize, but here is another section to just stop and take in and ponder because as Americans, we despise authority. It's one of our greatest spiritual evils precisely because we think it's one of our greatest virtues. And here's, here's a man who t- thoroughly understands authority who thoroughly understands office because he thoroughly sees these things as belonging to the Lord. So David persuaded his men with these words, verse 7, and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. I mean, there's some faithfulness on the part of the men too. She could just, and like humanly speaking, your logic, if I was sitting there, I'd be like, David, I, you're too pious for your own good. I'm just going to take a sprint at this thing and end all our troubles. <laughs> so there's, there's a, I mean, this is piety amongst David's, uh, David's faithful men too. They share his understanding. Verse 8, afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called for Saul. My Lord, the King. I mean, think about, that's what you say to this man who's tried to kill you, who's repaid your every good with evil, who's hunted you down, who's murdered priests, who helped you, who's killed man, woman, and child in his relentless pursuit of you, who's, for all the good you've done for his countrymen, he comes and tries to attack you. And you say, my Lord, the King. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And then the study note points out that this was like, this actually exposed him physically. Whether he full on prostrated himself or bowed or whatever, you know, he exposes himself to immediate danger. Verse 9, and David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave, and some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. I mean, look at this piety on the part of David that he calls him my father. And that's exactly what the... uh, that's exactly how the commandments, you know, the fourth commandment in the large catechism, when how, see, we have, as Luther says there, we have, we have flesh and blood fathers that were born into their household, or, you know, by adoption they raise us. We have, so we have a familial father. We have fathers in government. You know, as much as we might disagree with this politician or that, to honor them as our father, to pray for them, um, if we have opportunity to plead with them, as a child with his father to do what's right. You know, that's to be our heart and our attitude. It's David's heart and attitude towards Saul who tried to kill him so many times. And then we have spiritual fathers too. Those are the three kinds of fathers Luther spells out for us in the large catechism. But who on earth, and I mean, of course it sounds biased because I am a pastor, but who on earth treats their pastor like a father? Who on earth obeys their, their pastor <laughs> like a father, you know? That doesn't happen. Not only is that not American, somehow we've got into our heads that that's like not LCMS. You know, the pastor is, must be obedient to the congregation is rather how much of our constitutions are written. It's completely on its head, frankly. So that the spiritual, 
<laughs> so that the spiritual father of the pastor is the voters' assembly. <laughs> oh my, things are so upside down. But Luther reminds us we have the, this these threefold this threefold father office. You know, the father of your house, the father in your nation, the father of your church, the spiritual father. And even if these even if these are King Sauls, right, in each office, even if these are wretched, murderous men in each office, David shows us how to, how that commandment is kept. You keep it for the sake of the office. You keep it for the sake of the Lord. You realize that they're accountable to the Lord, not to you. That's true humility and true faith. But we're all called to that. I mean, we're all called to that because it's a... We live in a place that despises authority and sees it as a virtue to despise authority. And unfortunately, that runs through every one of our veins, my own included, no doubt. No doubt. So David shows us a different way. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. In other words, like, look, you're accountable to the Lord, not to me. That's basically what David's saying. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After, after whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? A dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord, therefore, be judge and give sentence between me and you, and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. In other words, like, look, like you're wasting your time. Not only am I not a threat to you, I, if I wanted to kill you, I would have. I am not a threat to you. You're wasting your time. You're pursuing me as worthless as a dead dog, as, as small as a flea. That's who I am to you. I'm, I'm absolutely harmless to you. Why do you keep insanely pursuing me? And that's the mystery of evil. Evil answers simply because you're good. Well, we'll have to break there as we're out of time. So we will simply pick up next week, chapter 24, verse 16. May our Lord bless and keep you. Till next time.